0: It would be important to go ahead and finish that rather than turning to something else. So I want to work on this one until we get it done, either today or tomorrow, and uh, then start the new direction. I think it is important that we've been considering our fathers and learning some lessons from their lives and the relationship with God over these past Actually, now several months. But today I want to go to the book of Hosea, because we've been discussing Ephraim. And as I mentioned before, Ephraim is, other than Judah, the only one of the tribes that really is mentioned specifically in the prophecies, in terms of importance or what is going on. Uh, And I think that we've seen enough evidence now to pretty well conclude that this nation is Ephraim, that we are the firstborn, and that this is also where the church of the firstborn began in the end time, and is where it will continue. God did not change it to Ephraim without forethought. He could have left it with Manasseh, which was the actual physical birth order, but he didn't. He said that Ephraim will become greater, and there will be tens of thousands in Ephraim compared to the thousands of Manasseh, and that it will be double fruitful. That's what the word means, double fruit. So, as we come to the book of Hosea, uh, you'll remember from the Minor Prophet series, that's where we began that, with the first of the Minor Prophecies, which are written like the chapters of a book. Different authors. But God inspired them to write in a storyline, chapter after chapter, to give a picture of two things. One is the church of the firstborn, and that is the first fulfillment of these prophecies. It's the first fulfillment of all the prophecies, in fact. And the second storyline that is woven through the minor prophets and all the other prophets is that of physical Israel. Now, we recognized physical Israel because it's so obvious in the stories over the years, but we, except for places where it referred specifically to the ministry or the priests or the prophets, we tended to overlook the story as having to do with the church itself first and foremost, and therefore did not foresee what would happen to the church, being scattered as it has, and its numbers decimated spiritually speaking. It slipped up on us, but the story was in here all the time. And now that we have seen the church pretty much decimated, it still has some destruction that will occur, but now we are seeing the physical nations of Israel begin to go down very rapidly before our very eyes. So what we experienced in the church, we are now beginning to experience in the nation. And the last few weeks and months have really put the handwriting on the wall. And not only on the wall, now it's beginning to happen in real life. It's been on the wall for some time, actually, but now it's beginning to actually come off the wall and impact people's lives. Their pensions, their future, their social security, everything that we have been secure in in this nation is now suddenly very, very shaky and will come apart very soon. So it is only fitting that Hosea would begin this story by addressing primarily Ephraim, because this nation is the leader not only of Israel in this end time, but has been the leader of the world. I didn't say it was a righteous leadership, I just said we've been the leaders of the world. And we have led in debauchery and sin and all the things that are wrong. Even though we, in our own minds, have considered ourselves a God-fearing, holy Christian nation. Or at least the majority of the population did until recently. I don't know whether most would consider it that today or not. Because there are so many who are are a-religious or non-religious, or have some religion other than Christianity, or so-called Christianity. But it was written from the standpoint, primarily, of this nation. So the Minor Prophets, when it's talking about the church of the firstborn and the nation of the firstborn, addresses Ephraim. And this book has more to do with Ephraim than it does any other. It mentions Jacob, it mentions Israel as a whole, but it points a great deal, the finger, at the nation and the church of the firstborn. So it is very timely for us today as we see things coming apart. Of course, everybody, after the stock market went up 930-some-odd points yesterday, thought, ah, the problems are solved. They're going to throw all this money at the system, both the American and the European and the Asian central banks, and suddenly everything is going to be okay. They didn't address the problems. They're just throwing money at the banks in an inflationary move that will ultimately be even worse. It's not going to solve anything. When when you have a fire, let's say it's a gasoline fire, and you put it out by throwing more money or more gas on the fire, it doesn't put it out. And when you have a money fire and you throw more money on it, all it does is make that fire bigger. So it might stave off the fall for a few weeks or months, but it will make the fall bigger when it does come. But I don't know that everybody is convinced that it solved the problem anyway. I checked this before I came over for this afternoon service, and the Dow down about 70. It was up around 300 this morning when it opened, but it's since dropped, so it's in the negative again. Well, they haven't solved the problems, and they haven't addressed the corruption and the graft and the lying and cheating and stealing, That has been going on, and that is continuing. I read briefly, and I don't know whether it was all a matter of uh, whether I got the whole story or not. But there was an article this morning on the front page that said that they are going to give most of that money to nine banks. And the article says, "Well, what happens to the other 800 or 8,648 or whatever the number was? Do they just crater?" That was the headline. They'll help their big moneyed friends out, but what about everybody else? Do you really think they're going to help you out? Out might be the right word there. They'll help us out in the cold, out into slavery, but they're not going to help us as we would define it. Anyway, I'm not going to go through the first three chapters of Hosea except in summary Uh, This was the word of God that came to Hosea. It doesn't say to whom he addressed it particularly at first. But he told Hosea to go marry himself a wife of Horeb's, a harlot. Because his life was to be a type of Israel as a whole. And God said Israel has been a whore, a whoring after other gods, other lovers. So I want you to marry a harlot, and I want you to have children by her. The first one that they had. Uh, he said, name it Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. So the name means no more mercy. Then the second one came it was named lo for you are not my people and I will not be your God. In other words, God is saying, I look at you and I'm going to have this man marry this woman and have these children and the story that you were, the lesson, the message you were to get from it, is that I'm not going to have mercy on you anymore, and I'm not going to be your God, and you're not my children anymore. But he does say, verse 10 of chapter 1, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So he says, I'm going to put you away, but eventually you're coming back, and you will be the children of the living God. But the problem is, a lot of severe, nasty, horrible lessons have to be learned in the meantime. Then in chapter 2, he says, Say to your brethren Ami and to your sisters Rahama, plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and set her as in the day that she was born. And I will not have mercy on her children, verse 4, for they be the children of whoredoms, for their mother has played the harlot. So he is setting the stage here for what he is about to say in the last chapters of the book. Uh, a declaration of what Israel has been, and it would be acted out over a period of years in Hosea's life with this woman. God took great care, great pains, to tell a story. And I suspect that this situation may have been fairly hard on Hosea. You know, for God himself to tell you, I want you to go marry a harlot, would have been kind of hard to swallow in the first place. And then I want you to have children, and I'm going to put terrible names on them that represent what I'm about to do to this old country. It was quite a weight that God put on uh, Hosea's shoulders. He had people do some pretty tough things at times. Remember Ezekiel laying on one side, 390 days, and then on the other side, for 40 days for Israel and for Judah, and having to bake his food and manure. First it was going to be human, and then Ezekiel said, Please, Lord, yeah, okay, you can, use, you can use cow dung. He gave him that much. And then he had Isaiah run around bare butt naked for some time. Uh, that must have been humiliating and difficult to do. I don't know what God has in mind for the future, uh, maybe Gordon will have to do something like that. <laughs> Bill's laughing real loud over here. <laughs> Let's move on before we get a picture in mind. I, I don't want to see this. <clears throat> anyway, he's speaking here of the church and of the nation. and. These are pretty severe things he's doing, talking about stripping her naked. Uh, Verse 11, I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, for she says, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. So he took away all the fruits, he took away all the blessings, he took away uh, the colleges, the buildings, the churches, the congregations of the church, uh, all that had been produced. And now he's going to do the very same thing with our nation. But he will fix it, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. So here we begin to see the story of why we are sitting out here in the wilderness already. The God has a plan and a purpose even as the destruction of the church occurred, and just as the destruction of the nation is now beginning to be very obvious, God is calling people out into a wilderness, he's leading them there, and there he will speak comfortably with her. Or as Micah 4 says, there you will be delivered of the child, Christ, that you are trying to produce in your lives. And I will give her her vineyards from there, and the Valley of Achor for a door of hope. Valley of Acor means uh, roiled or stirred or confused and troubled, but it'll change. He says he'll give us the Valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Remember how they sang on the other side of the Red Sea, the Song of Miriam. They were so happy. And God says he is going to cause the trouble that we have been through to turn into a door of hope. And we'll sing as in our youth. And it shall be at that day, says the Eternal, that you shall call me Ishai, or husband, and shall call me no more Balai, or Master, or Mister. So he's going to begin to assemble his bride together, and we'll begin to call him and look to him more as husband, instead of a less endearing uh, term that we might use. But it will become more intimate, if you will. So he'll take Balaam away from us. Verse 23, And I will sow her to me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, You are my people, and they shall say, You are my God. So what did God do when Israel defiled and abused the original marriage covenant that was made with them? God divorced her, and God used Hosea as a type. And God said, you're not my people anymore. And he even wrote the Jews off specifically in Matthew, where Christ told them, you won't see me again, or have anything to do with me, basically, until you accept those I sent, that is, his apostles and his church. We don't need to go to the Jews. The Jews are going to come to us someday. They won't be any time soon. They will essentially be in the millennium. But the spiritual Jews who wake up, will come, to where God's truth is being preached in the wilderness, wherever that may be. We won't claim that. Wherever that happens, it will happen. If it's here, great, and I hope that's the case. If it's somewhere else, then we will need to go there, but where God begins to do these things, we need to be. So we can either lead or we can follow. One of the two. In chapter 3, he talks again about how he had brought this woman to him. And it says in verse 4, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without teraphim. In other words, All those things that are necessary to worship God and to follow him and have a righteous leadership will be gone. Uh, And we have been in that situation for twenty-some years now since Herbert Armstrong died. Without leadership, without a functioning church, without all those things that are necessary for it. Been scattered to the winds, here a little and there a little. He said, our king was dead, our counselors perished in Micah 4, again, I think referring to Herbert Armstrong. I was just reading somewhere, I think it was in Isaiah this morning, yeah, about chapter seven or eight, where it talks about her two kings will die. And I hadn't really thought of that. I've been thinking more in terms of the church, but it made me wonder about our nation, because it was speaking of Ephraim in that context, uh, would that be president and vice president? I don't know. Possibility. We certainly had the physical leaders die, Herbert Armstrong and later Joe DeKotsch. Will we have the physical leaders of the nation die? Perhaps that would occur, I don't know. Anyway, verse 5, afterward shall the children of Israel return after having been without for some years. They'll return and seek the eternal their God and David their king and shall fear the eternal, his goodness, and his goodness, in the latter days." Now, spiritually speaking, it's first of all to the church, and I think that God is going to give us leadership as David was, the type of leader he was. Uh, It mentions that in Ezekiel 34, it mentions it here and in other places, toward the end of Isaiah as well. Uh, So I think that God is going to raise up leadership in the same spirit and attitude of David so that God's people can be led properly again for a change. And of course, David himself will be here in the millennium when physical Israel uh, returns to God. So you have these two parallel stories going. Anyway, we get down to brass tacks then in chapter 4, where he begins to address Ephraim and all of Israel. He gets away from the symbolism of Hosea and what it meant and gets into the specifics of what is going to happen here at the end time to both the church of the firstborn and of the nation of the firstborn, both of which are headquartered in the United States. Chapter four of Hosea. Hear the word of the eternal, you children of Israel. So up to this point he had only addressed really Hosea and the meaning of that, but now he opens it up to all the children of Israel. For the eternal has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. God is upset. God is frustrated. He has a controversy, an argument. Why? This is important to understand. Why is God upset? And he expresses it many different ways in many different places, but here he says, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. That which should be the most important part of our society and culture is missing. And in truth, you might say, for the most part, even in the church, we are missing truth, mercy, and knowledge. One group of people has no mercy on the other groups of the church, and they do not have the truth or the knowledge to know what is transpiring, and what is going to happen next and next all the way through in this story. It is only the very few who have the truth and the knowledge of what God is going to do and how he's going to straighten it out and where he's going to start. Very few. Probably not many more than a hundred. There may be a few individuals scattered through the church who have picked up the picture or part of the picture. But not very many. If you're one of those who understands, consider yourself deeply blessed. Because it is not very many who have it. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery they break out and blood touches blood. Every man for himself. Dog-eat-dog is the way our society is, and really that's the way the church has become. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. The fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. You look at our society today, and we've used so many chemicals and unnatural things, that the animals, the birds are dying, the bees are dying, the fish in the sea. Are being taken away as well. Terrible management by mankind. We are destroying the earth that God gave us so pristine and beautiful. God says in the book of Revelation, Woe to those who pollute the earth. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for your people are as they that strive with the priest. You know, we're all just, one's just as guilty as the next. It doesn't do any good to try to blame somebody else. Almost everyone in the church is trying to blame everybody else except themselves. There's so much self-righteousness, it's sickening. Why not we just admit, I caused the problem. I need to repent and change and grow and overcome. I need to turn to God but because everybody's doing the blame game and blaming the others for being to sins instead of themselves. Therefore shall you fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. Our mother of the church has been destroyed. And now our mother, this womb we're in of the United States, where we have felt protected with all the amniotic fluid around us, is also about to be ripped open, and will be exposed to the harsh light of day. And it's not going to be a pretty picture. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you, that you shall be no priest to me. Seeing that you have forgotten uh, the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Isn't it sad? that the next generation, the generation growing up now, is about to suffer horribly because Americans have departed from God. And this is coming down on our children. Our fear for our children. There is a place in Isaiah I read this morning again which says that God will save our children. He's speaking to the church there. And I have hope that some of our children may yet be saved out of this before it comes down. And maybe he's talking of the Millennium and the Great White Throne Judgment. I don't know. But hopefully, maybe, some of our children will begin to repent. I would love to see that. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. As we got fat as a church, we got self-sufficient and lay it Ho hum, not really digging and searching for God, and He spewed us out of His mouth. And we have an ungodly nation today that will do anything. Any uh, means justifies the end. Lie, cheat, swear, kill, doesn't matter. Get yours while the getting's good. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. They devise mischief on their beds, as I think it says in Proverbs. And there shall be, like people, like priests. You know, we like to blame the leaders of the land. They're only people who are out here just like the rest of us, and then we elected them to an office. They're no different than we are. It is the lying and cheating and stealing of the people that is wrong in the first place. So minister, people, leaders in Washington, the people, it's all the same, God says. There's no difference. One's just as bad as the other. I'll punish them for their ways and reward them their doings, for they shall eat and not have enough. Like Amos says of a partial famine, and then later an almost total famine of the word, So the church isn't satisfied with what they're hearing, but they go away with a little gnawing hunger and don't know what to do about it because they're not getting the answers they need. And it's sad. Now people in the nation are looking to their senators and representatives and they're not being fed much either, are they? And they're going away hungry and saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are you going to solve the problems? Oh, we have a great idea. We'll give all, the money, all your money to the banks. This will solve your problem. <laughs> sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Weird. How does you giving all my money to the bank help me? I don't, I don't make the connection there. But they're looking to the government to save them. And you know that's what Satan and the governments of this world want. They want us to become so dependent so that the only answers to having something to eat come from them. And if they can get us in that position, they can do anything with us they want. That's what they're driving at. They'll eat and not have enough and commit whoredom and shall not increase because, here's the root reason for it all, they have left off to take heed to the eternal. This is an ungodly nation, it is not a Christian nation. It is an ungodly church that gives him lip service, but does its own thing. Doesn't pay attention to what God himself says. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. All those things that indicate wealth. The average person did not have wine, only the wealthy did. So when we've become wealthy, our heart went away. Our heart went after our riches. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declares to them, for the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err, and they have gone a-whoring from under their God. Don't make love to God anymore. They make it to the things of this world, the material system that we have. And boy, God is going to take away the materiality in a real hurry now. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow thereof is good. They want to be comfortable. They don't want too much heat. They want to be in the shade. They want to be able to do their sins at leisure and comfortably. Let's don't have a picnic out in the sun with the ants. Let's get in the shade and let's let's go about our lives in a comfortable fashion. Americans don't want their comfort zone removed. People in the church don't want their comfort zone removed. Preach to us the smooth and easy things. Don't rattle the cage. And God says, lift up your voice like a trumpet and rattle the cage. So we try to rattle it around here. So you hear us rattle and rattle and rattle on. I I hope the rattle means something. Your daughters shall commit whoredom, your spouses shall commit adultery. Will I not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, and your spouses when they commit adultery? For themselves are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that does not understand shall fall. We don't understand God's way anymore. I want to do a series on marriage and the sanctity of it, and of all that has to do with the marriage relationship because we have gotten so far from it in this country we don't even understand what it's all about anymore. We just do whatever we want to do and we suffer as a result. Our families suffer as a result and the children that are born of our whoredoms suffer without having a full family. We've lost the understanding and the meaning of everything that God made to be good and to be right and God will punish. But we don't understand anymore. Everybody thinks that whatever you feel like doing, just do it. That's the way our society operates. And the church is the same way. Whatever you want to believe and whatever you want to do, just do it. There is no authority, and they don't go to God's Word, and they don't paw through it really looking for the answers. They just sort of assume that whatever they believed in worldwide 20, 30 years ago is fine. Well, you don't get in the mess we're in if everything's fine. And this nation would, didn't get in the mess that it's in if everything's fine and we're just a God-fearing Christian nation. Things don't go this bad when you're good. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, yet lot not, let not Judah offend. He says, Israel's gone into harlotry and whoredom, don't let Judah offend too. <laughs> well, nice thought. Come you, come not you into Gilgal, neither go you up to beth Aven nor swear the Eternal lives. For Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. So let's don't talk too much about God and how he lives when we've got all four feet planted and are sliding backward instead of being led in the right direction. Now, we naturally and normally balk at being pulled or led by someone. We want to do our own thing and follow our own direction. So we get bulky and we get stubborn and we begin to pull back any time anybody tries to show us where we ought to be going. It is just as natural as being alive and breathing, that is, carnally. If we're led by vanity, ego, and self, then we balk and rebel. If we're led by the Spirit of God, we will recognize that we are being led into places that our nature would not normally cause us to go, and our human nature wants to go the wrong way. So it's no wonder that we balk and our carnality begins to come out when we are taught from the pulpits, or when we are counseled or guided individually and personally. We just can't take it. And the reason is, we're too carnal. As Paul said, you are yet carnal. And we still have huge issues with pride. And therefore, we balk. Now, you are a few who will stand to be yelled at. You are the few who will take instruction and not say, I'm not listening to that anymore. There aren't very many in the church that you could preach in the manner that we do around here, too, and have them stick around. Most of them would not tolerate it, brethren. It's only the few that will, and you barely do. I barely do. We're still so human that it's so easy to get defensive and balk. Because we just by nature don't like to do the things of God. The human mind is enmity against God. Your mind, as you were born and as you grew up, was an enemy of God. Everything God says, the human mind would rather do just the opposite. We'd rather lie when the truth would serve us better by nature, just the way humans are. I'm thankful that you will listen. I'm thankful that you will work at trying to do what we read to you out of God's Word. he says some pretty tough things. He really does. But he has some mighty big rewards for those who will swim upstream and fight the good fight and truly work at it. For Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Eternal will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Then he says, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. First time he brings up Ephraim specifically in the book, but you'll see it all the way through from here on out. He says, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Jeremiah says, pray not for this people. They will not listen. Jeremiah, I think it's 50 or 51, says, if we could save it, we would. I love this country. I love this land. It is a beautiful land that God created and gave to his people Israel. And I'd love to see across the land everybody repent of the lying and cheating and stealing and greed and jealousy and envy and everything that is a part of our culture. The selfishness that has led to the destruction of our land and our air and everything that is here. I'd love to see it, but brethren, it's just not going to happen. God has made it very clear, and He says it here, very succinctly: is, uh, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Don't even bother. It wouldn't do a bit of good. We could, if we had the money and the resources, we could get on TV across this land and preach till we were blue in the face and horse in the throat, and it would do absolutely no good. Some are buying TV time and rolling the printing presses trying to get a nice little message out, and they're getting no response. And for the most part, the message they are sending out is so watered down and so weak and insipid and lukewarm that I don't see why anybody even would want to listen, much less heed. But even if they were to crank it up and put the word out there, it would do no good. God says Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. The die is cast. The lot is cast, if you will. God is going to destroy this nation. There is n- there's no way out of it at this point. Do we need to take time here to review the idols of Ephraim? Look at our culture. It's me first. It's money. It's things. We have created so many things that we spend our time and energy with but they have become idols and we do not spend time with God. And an idol may be defined as anything that takes the place of God or keeps you from serving God, gets between you and God, and takes away your time, energy, and worship and service to God and his people. Anything that takes up your time to the point you don't pray, study, and serve God is an idol. And we have lots of them in this country. Just take your pick. You can pick from dozens and hundreds and thousands of idols. Anything that wastes your time is vanity and nothingness and means nothing. That doesn't mean we can't have jobs, it doesn't mean we can't have some hobbies, things we like to do that help us relax and things that we enjoy and that can be constructive. But if they take so much time that we don't have time to devote to God and his people, then that's too much of a good thing, isn't it? Even good things that aren't wrong can be an idol. You know, we should be planting gardens. We should be doing things to help take care of ourselves at this point. We have a goal of every man having his own vine and fig tree. And that should be. But if you garden 18 hours a day, you don't have time for God or man, do you? So even that which is a wonderful thing, a garden, can become an idol and a curse to you. Anything done out of balance, anything done that takes us away from God, may not be evil in itself, but can still be a personal idol to us. So it doesn't have to be something necessarily that even is uh, contrary to God's law. Now some would be quite obvious, you know, spend 20 hours a day making money. Well, that's an idol. So it can be something that's wrong to start with that is an idol, or it can be something that is an idol because of the time and energy that it takes that keeps you away from God. So we all have to examine those things. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually for rulers with shame, or love shame. They love the way they are. The wind has bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. She's going to be blown away by the wind. Okay, then he says, Hear this, O priests, hearken, house of Israel. So the leadership both of the church and of the nation. Give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because you have been a snare on Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor, like hunters who go after the people and take everything they have and leave them penniless, poor, and poverty-stricken. And that is the process that's going on. Our leadership in the church left us poor and penniless spiritually with an empty sack of Laodiceanism, and ho-hum attitudes. And now we have the physical leaders of the nation that are going to strip us down and make us absolutely penniless and will be slaves to their new world order. That's what they're in the process of doing to us. The revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. The leadership of this country has revolted against God, they've revolted against law, They revolted against the Constitution, which was based on the law of God. And God is going to make slaughter of them. Now let's... Everything we're reading here mirrors our society and our culture. How this could be talking of any other nation, I do not know. It becomes clearer and clearer as we go. He said, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. Now he knows and is more aware of Ephraim, because Ephraim is the firstborn. Ephraim is supposed to be the leader of Israel. Now, who is the leader of Israel today? I'm not speaking here in terms of tribes at the moment. Is Holland? Is Ireland? Scotland? France? South Africa? Australia? Denmark? Come on, come up with one. Does the United Kingdom, England, lead Israel today? Who is the most prominent? Who is the most powerful? Who is the most or the wealthiest? Well, at the moment, The United States is the only answer there could possibly be. Canada's a pretty neat place, but they're not by any means the leader. How often do you hear of Canada in geopolitical circles? They have no weight whatsoever. The only one of any weight, power, might, strength is the United States. And God designated that Ephraim would be the double-blessed and would be the leader. So he addresses it here. I know Ephraim. They're very obvious. The rest of Israel isn't hid from him. But Israel's in his headlights. I mean, Ephraim is in his headlights. The others he can see peripherally. He's he's aware of them. But which, which nation is in the headlights today? For now, O Ephraim, you commit whoredom, and Israel is defiled. It is our whoredoms that are being transport or, uh, uh, transported or, or exported, is what I'm trying to say, across the seas to the rest of Israel and to the rest of the world. We are the leaders in filth. Both financial, pornographic, and any other kind of filth you want to name. We're the leaders. And Israel is defiled by it. They will not frame their doings to turn to their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the eternal. The pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. Going down. But God addresses the one that will have the biggest crash first and foremost. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the eternal, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. There comes a point where even people in the church are going to begin to seek God truly, but they can't find him. He's hidden. What does he say? Seek me while I may be found. Because there is coming a time when he won't be found anymore. There's a short period of time here, brethren, where we have opportunity to find God. Are we finding him? How hard are we working at it? They have dealt treacherously against the eternal, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Very short part time frame will be allowed for our destruction. Another one of those places where it says a month, a day, suddenly, quickly. Uh, all the places that talk about our downfall are a short time period. Blow the cornet in Gibeon, the trumpet in Ramah. Ramah. Cry aloud at beth Aven, After you, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. So he points out Ephraim specifically being desolate. And the rest of Israel will know surely what is coming upon us. It is our fall that will be the great fall, Because we're up higher. The bigger and the higher they are, the harder they fall. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound, therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. It says the Jews will cheat. That's They're known for cheating in business. They're like people that would move the boundaries. You know, they had rocks set up to mark the corners of the property. And it was illegal by Moses' law to go out and move the landmarks. You know, move them over 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 feet and... Have a little more property for yourself. says, the Jews are known for cheating you. So they're going to be poured out like water. There are more Jews in this country than there are almost anywhere else. They're going to fall with us. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment, not of God, but the commandments of men. The commandments of Satan. We followed our father, the devil, as Christ put it about the Pharisees of his day. Are you beginning to feel a little oppressed in this country? Do you feel that your freedoms are being taken away? Do you feel that your taxes are being raised unfairly? Ours got doubled this year. By the way, we have to have the payment in before the end of October. That's only a couple weeks off the first half, and just figure on about doubling it. Uh, I am going to protest it. Uh, Someone here in the area protested it. I asked him if theirs went up. He said about 5%, but their sons went up, and he protested it, and the county cut it back again. You know, property values have fallen about half in Arizona, so they doubled our property taxes. This doesn't make sense. I feel kind of oppressed by that. And I'm going to write him a letter, find out who to write it to. Maybe we can get it back, but uh, your tax bill will be coming to you shortly. But I just thought I'd make your day. No, it just sort of fit in the context here. But Ephraim is oppressed, and the oppression we're beginning to feel is just going to get worse and worse and worse. Because our freedoms are being taken away, and we're broken in judgment. Nobody has good judgment anymore. Look at the way they're handling all the problems that are beginning to crop up. Poor, lousy judgment, and the way they go about it. Of course, when your goal is to destroy, you you do things that look stupid, but are actually pretty smart if destruction is your purpose. because he willingly walked after the wrong commandments. We're happy to do evil in order to get gain. That is no truer anywhere on earth than it is in this country. And all the crooks and banksters and gangsters are going to see the light of day pretty quick. They're being uncovered, revealed before our eyes. Therefore will I be to Ephraim as a moth and to the house of Judah as rottenness. A moth gets in and eats your clothes, makes some holes in them so that you can't wear them. And we're going to have holy garments, but they're not the kind of holy God wants. The moth is going to destroy and eat up that which we have. Now, interesting it is in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, at some point, Americans are going to begin to wake up and realize how sick we really are as a nation and wonder what to do about it. So, when this occurs, when Ephraim sees his wound, or sickness, and Judah saw his wound, Then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and said to King Jareb, yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. Now they had the G7 meeting over this last weekend where the governors of the largest countries, the, the top brass anyway, got together to discuss solutions to the world's problems. The whole world's economy is going in the tank had it. So they got together to try to figure out an answer. Now, should that be, if we were truly a nation who trusts God, in God we trust, they do trust in a God, they just trust the wrong one, and they got it all mixed up on the dollar bill. They don't trust in the almighty creator God, they trust in the God of this world, and the God of money or mammoth. But if we were truly a God-fearing nation, should we not be fasting and praying and repenting and turning to the true God and asking him to solve our problems? But instead, we run to the Gentile nations to get them to solve our problems. The owners of the American Federal Reserve, the primary owners, and most of the owners reside in Europe. And their headquarters is in Frankfurt, Germany, the Rothschilds, the Red Shields, the Red Badge of Esau, of Edom. So the central bankers of the United States and the Federal Reserve are going where? To the Assyrian to find an answer. It's going to get worse. And if this prophecy is not being fulfilled right now, today, I am very surprised, or will be. And it'll get worse. We'll depend more and more and more on Europe because we're going to see that we cannot save ourselves. And all our wealth will be removed from this country and put in the pockets of the big bankers who are allied with the Rothschilds of Europe. That's where it's all going. It's not real smart, is it, to go to the Gentiles to answer our problems. We'll beg the Chinese to come in. Goldman Sachs has just gotten a deal with the Japanese to buy a percentage of their bank. Or is it Morgan Stanley, one of them? I guess it was Morgan Stanley. So they're running to China, they're running to Japan to try to find money to survive on. Selling ourselves out to the Gentiles. God told us in Deuteronomy 28, we read the other day, not to be borrowers but to be lenders. We used to be lenders, now we are borrowers. And we're selling our soul, billion by billion, to others and they're becoming the head and us the tail. The Gentile is rising up high above us. And we're about to put one in our highest office in the land. Now he may be half Israelite, but he's at least half Gentile. Mostly most of that half's Arab. For I will be to Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. God said, I'm going to treat this country like I was a big African lion, and you were a, <laughs> uh, I I'm trying to think of an antelope, an impala, let's say. You've seen them on National Geographic. I've seen them in Africa where the lions attack the animals, tear them, chew them apart. Not a pretty picture. In fact, they start chewing on them and eating them while they're still alive. You get several lions eating one while it's still bleeding out its life, still alive, still feeling the pain. God says, I'm going to be like a lion on you. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense And seek my face. I'm going to be like a lion. I'm going to tear you to pieces. And I'm going to turn and walk away. And I will not turn back and even look at you again. Until you seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. There is some encouragement. But it's going to take that to cause us to repent. Name me anything else that could be done that would cause the people of this country to repent, to turn to God with their whole heart. Would it be if God gave us a bumper crop? Would that turn us to Him? If God gave every one of us a new luxury automobile, would we suddenly say, oh, thank God, and turn to Him with our whole hearts? If God told the people at the banks and the government, that we each one of us needed a million dollars in our retirement account, and that it wouldn't inflate, that it would be there for every one of us to retire on, would we turn to God? If we had hurricanes, tornadoes, train wrecks, bus wrecks, disasters, would we turn to God? If we had terrorists blow down some of our buildings, would we turn to God? No. I haven't noticed any signs of it, have you? We've had those things already happening. It's going to take more than that. You know, God isn't somebody that wants to hurt people. He's not somebody that is unfeeling and cold and likes to kill. God is doing this as an absolute last resort. He says, I'm going to tear you up in pieces and leave you lying, bleeding on the ground, and I'm not going to come back until you say, Oh God, help me. Then and only then will he turn and bless us. It's true of the church and it's true of the nation. God has ripped the church in little pieces and gone off like a lion and he said I'll turn my face from you until I hear you cry out to me and repent with your whole heart. And those who do that are the ones he will turn his face back to. The rest he will ignore. Hopefully, we will seek him early. I hope you and I are already doing it. I hope we can take the warning ahead of time. I don't want to see you people here in this room today ripped and torn apart, starving to death without food or water in a great tribulation and dying, pitifully, hungrily, thirstily. I want to see it. God has said that he will take out those who will seek him now, protect them, take them into the wilderness. He will lure her into the wilderness, he said, and there he will protect her and deliver her take care of her, feed her. He's going to do a small remnant of his people that way. We have every chance, every opportunity to escape what is coming. Will we? Will we heed? Will we hear? Will we answer? Will we put away our idols? Whatever it is, that gets between us and God and doing what God tells us to do. Is it land? Is it home? Family? Children? Husband? Wife? I mean, you know, music or movies or sugar or some of those things are fairly easy by comparison. But it really hits home when we start talking about ranches and farms and lands and houses friends children grandchildren husbands wives what are we willing to give up to obey God what are we not willing to give up what is an idol to us there are people World War I, World War II in the nations of Israel, who died because they would not give up a piece of furniture. The people who have died because they would not give up a house. They stayed in the house until they came in and shot them and ripped them up. Wouldn't leave. Could have lived. What stands between us and God? What is so important to us that we can't give it up to serve Almighty God, our Creator? He says He will save our children. There are people who would give up eternal life for the sake of their children. I've said before, God loves your children more than you do. If you don't believe that, you don't know God. He does love them more than you do. In fact, when you won't chasten them and you won't make them mind and make them obey and do whatever is necessary because you'd rather be their friend, pal, buddy, and companion and you won't get rough with them and make them do what they ought to do, God says you hate your children. He says he chastens every son whom he loves Yeah, we sometimes have a lot of emotion for our children, but it isn't God's love. And we need to come to have the love for our children that God defines as real love. And do with them whatever is necessary to make them respectful and loving and obedient. Because we don't really love them if we let them be nagging and whining and disobedient and rebellious and having their own way. That is not loving your children. It's having emotion and pity and compassion on the poor little thing because he wants it, so I have to let him do it, or whatever garbage we spout out. God loves this nation more than anybody loves this nation. He loves the people of this nation. But he is about to paddle our hides until we can't stand it. He is going to kill 90% of us to physical death so that he might save us in the end. That's how far he has to go with people. And unfortunately, he's going to have to go that far with nearly everybody in order to save them in the end. Romans 11 says, all Israel shall be saved. But look what he says he's going to do to this country, Ephraim, before they will repent and turn to him. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy 28? Pretty dramatic. Pretty awful. The things that the Gentile soldiers are going to do to our wives and daughters, children and old people. Pretty pitiful. That's what it takes to get a proud American to repent. We're getting down to the brass tacks. We're getting down to the time, but this isn't far off. The only way we're going to be saved, brethren, is if we put God first in our lives, in everything. Maybe you can kill the messenger. Maybe you can deny what I'm saying. Maybe you can turn a deaf ear. Maybe you can wish I'd lay off. What I'm saying today is not hurting you nearly as bad as feeling a bayonet rip from your crotch right up to your chin. It's not nearly as bad. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. A stitch in time saves nine. Repent while there is time. Any idol you have, get rid of it. Obey your God so that you may live. God has set before us this day good and evil, life and death. Therefore, choose life. Why will you die, O Israel? Why? I'm not going to try to live your life for you. I'm not going to try to tell you what to do. I'm not going to try to tell you when to do it. I'm just going to read you the scriptures. And you have to go get on your knees And read those scriptures and talk to your God in heaven. And make some decisions about what it is you're putting before God. And what are you going to do about it? Because if you don't make the right decisions, you're going to die very, very painfully. Ninety percent of the church is going into the tribulation. And most of it is going to die there, if not all of it. He which will hold back will give his life. If we're willing to give our life now, God says we'll save it. If we're not willing to give it, we'll lose it. So you're looking at a death penalty. And not very long on death row. Because God will turn the deaf ear and turn his face away and will not listen. And we will be torn in little pieces God using himself as a symbol of a lion. Now maybe that isn't too inspiring on the first day of Feast of Tabernacles. Well, you know, I could forego this, and I could go to Isaiah 11 and we could read all about the lions and the bears and the snakes and the sheep and all the peace and comfort, and happiness, but it predicts there. Well, you know, it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to go back there and read about those nice things that somebody's going to have if we're not there with them. If you're not there to enjoy it, it won't mean a whole lot. It'll mean nothing. So maybe the first part here, we need to come to grips with whatever it may be in our lives that are cutting us off from God, because our iniquities separate us from God. This is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. Now, we can say we love him with all our heart, as an emotion, but God defines it as keeping his commandments. He says, that's when I know you really love me. It's not just some feeling you might have, but when you keep my commandments. When you do what I want done, we have some decisions to make. During this feast would be a fine time when we don't have jobs to go to, we don't have the normal worries and frustrations of life, but we're separated from it for eight eight days, and we do have time. How will we use that time? Will we think seriously about our lives and about whether we are here worshiping the King, the Lord of Hosts with our whole heart, or whether we're holding something back to ourselves and still putting something ahead of God? He says, be willing to give it all up to obey Him, anything, everything, even your own life also be a shame if our children or our grandchildren turned out to be idols, wouldn't it? You know what God is going to do with the idols? He's going to smash them. He's going to smash them. If you make your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your husband, your wife, your land, your home, an idol, put it between you and God, he will smash it. And you won't have it anymore. The idols of this land are going to be taken away from us. We will not be in our homes. We will not have our cars. We will not have our fast foods. We will not have our comfort foods. We will not have our music. We will not have our TVs. Everything that has become an idol will be smashed. Wouldn't it be better to give them up first? Wouldn't it be so bad to see a CD player or a TV smashed, I don't suppose? We could get over that. But wouldn't it be terrible to see our wives, our husbands, our children smashed? You could even get over your car or your house being smashed or taken away from you. But to see those we love hurt is going to hurt. Now, there's a way to save it. There's a way to save them. That's for us to obey God with our whole heart. Chapter 6. Come, and let us return to the eternal. For he has torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out what the two days and the third day are there, and come up with different ideas. But you know, really, it doesn't matter. All it is saying is, I'm going to tear you like a lion, and if you'll seek my face early, and you'll come, and serve me, I'll revive you in a very short period of time. I'll set you up, I'll take care of you, and you'll live in His sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Eternal. We have to get to truly know Him, not know of Him, but to know Him intimately, closely, personally is the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. And you know, you destroy that relationship when you adulterate it. You can adulterate your faithfulness and your relationship with God by putting too much emphasis on family, husband or wife or children or grandchildren or whatever. and your faith is weakened and even destroyed because you put them ahead of him. That cannot be. We have to follow on to truly know God. Sometimes the price is pretty heavy. You think you have a a cross to bear. Think of he who gave up everything for you. He gave up life. He gave up his blood. He was willing to sacrifice it all. He had a house. He had friends. He had disciples who loved him. He had family who loved him, his mother, brothers, sisters. He set them aside to do the work of God. He even said, in one case, when his mother and his brothers are outside the house waiting for him, asking of him, send him out to us. And he said, no, these are my brothers and sisters. These who are hearing my words are my brothers and sisters. Did he love his mother? Yes, he did. His brothers, his sisters, yes, he did. Very deeply. Because he was that kind of person. But he recognized the higher value. I think we do too. I am closer to far many more people in this room than I am to virtually all my family. Because they're going different directions. They're not here with us. They don't understand. They don't agree with me. I have no honor in my own family, for the most part. I'm not close to most of them. Can't be. We think too much apart. One of my brothers was here recently. and worked with him for about six months. We got along fairly well. But we disagree on so many things that there's some things you just don't talk about. Nothing in common there can't truly be closed, can't talk about most of the things that are from the heart, because we disagree on so many areas. So you talk about this, you talk about that, and you get along okay. But if I want to have a good conversation about God and the things of God, I've got to come to some of you. Can't go to my brothers and sisters. Can't go to most of my own children. Got one that I think's coming around. And I cry tears of joy that one of them seems to be waking up. I hope she finishes the job. Then I can be close with her in a way that I can't be with the others. I would hope that they all would wake up. But I'm not holding my breath because I can't hold it very long Probably going to take a while. may take some terrible things. I don't know. We've got to follow on to know God and put Him first. And no man, woman, child, house, or anything else is worth giving up eternal life. And having the opportunity to be a part of the Bride of Christ and help teach the whole world, including our relatives that might survive the coming Holocaust and who come up in the Great White Throne Judgment, and we'd be there to teach them. Show them the way. They won't listen now. My grandchildren, if I were to talk religion, well, of course, they're still pretty young, most of them, because I'm so young, but most of them wouldn't pay any attention to grandpa. And their fathers and mothers certainly won't. I can't really lead them in God's ways. I can talk to them a little bit, but you might as well try to soak a duck with water. not do any good. Yeah, Dad, sure. We know better. We have a better way. They think they found true religion apart from the church of God. Some of them. doesn't do any really good to talk to them. It wouldn't do any good to go move next door to them and try to talk them into what I believe. I can't lead them, I can't save them. All I can do is put God first in my life and hope and pray that he will have enough mercy that someday, in the millennium or the great white throne judgment, I can say, want to listen to dad? Yeah, dad, I'm all ears. Wouldn't that be neat? But I know that for the most part, most of them will not have an opportunity until one of those two times. And I want to be there when they're humble and meek. And theirs didn't work out and mine did. And I have the opportunity to teach them. Then I can really help them. Right now it's just lay your bets and hope and you won't get anywhere. You're just spinning your wheels and maybe throwing away your own salvation that would give you opportunity later on. Yeah, we'll probably get to some of those wonderful blessings that God promises those who will obey during this feast. I intend to fully, God willing, and I live through the feast. But we need to face what we need to face in order to come to that time. And I should think that what we're beginning to see happen in this country truly should get our attention and make us realize that we'd better do something about some things. We don't want to be left out. I don't have much of my own family. You're my family. You're all I got, brethren. You're all I got. I want you there. I want to be there with you. I don't want us to miss out. It doesn't do you a bit of good to worry about the things you can't fix or that you can't do anything about. You can't do anything about your children or your grandchildren. The only one you can do anything about is you and these people right here who will listen. That's the only place you can do any good. So you're just wasting your time worrying about your family that isn't here or isn't in the church. You're wasting your time. God loves them more than you do. He will do whatever is necessary if it means tearing them limb from limb to bring them to repentance where they'll listen to him and they'll be saved in their time in their way and God knows them and he loves them and he will save them and he'll have a better you'll have a better chance of seeing them saved if you obey because God sanctifies the children because of the obedience of the parents 1 Corinthians 7 and the promises he made in Deuteronomy, and all through. That if we would obey him, he would take care of our children. In his time, and in his way, maybe not your time, maybe not your way, but his way. And after all, Father knows best. He knows when and how to call our children and our grandchildren. He knows when and how their physical life should end so that he may save them in the long run. Do we trust him? Do we have faith? It's a very precious commodity in time. Will he find faith when he comes to this earth? If he's going to find it, you know where he's going to have to find it? Right here. There won't be much in the world. Just his very few will have it. Let's not disappoint him. O Ephraim, well, wait a minute. Then shall we know, if we turn to him and he heals us, verse 3, then shall we know, if we follow on to know the eternal, his going forth is prepared as the morning. He has a plan, he's going to carry it out. Just like you get up in the morning and you've got a plan for the day, you go on about it. And he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your goodness is as a morning cloud and as the early dew it goes away. We have good intentions and then the sun comes up and (laughs) it's gone. He wants it to last all day. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are as the light that goes forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He wants mercy and not sacrifice. Well, I'm out of time, so I'm going to stop there for today.